Anyway, uh, that's where we are in, in the history of the church. There is persecution going on. It's not widespread. It's not, it's not organized government persecution quite yet. It's, but it's about to come. And Peter is here uh, giving uh, a, a preparation for that. And he's been talking about it through, the, through this entire chapter of 3 and into the first part of 4. And now he, ta- he, he kind of takes a little segue from that, but still related to, this is how a Christian is to live. That's, that's what he's going to say. And it's, it's, not, it's not comprehensive. Uh, he takes it in summary form. He doesn't go through everything, but he gives some basics and some of the more important aspects of, of the Christian life and how we are to behave and how we are to conduct ourselves both in duty and in service. Those are the two areas he's going to touch upon, which is the main part of the text as we, as we, go, as we go through this text. And he's going to conclude by it's all done to the glory of God in Christ. That's, that's ultimately what he's going to say in this text. So we're going to look, first of all, at the first part of verse 7, verse 7, verse uh, A, where he tells us that we need to understand the times. And verse 7 says this, the end of all things is at hand. Uh, that's, uh, that's, that's what he, he, he opens the text with. He says, the end of all things that is, ha- is, 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 at, ha- is at hand. And, and what he's doing is he's, he's speaking to the, the approaching End times. Uh, technically, end times uh, is a word that is used a number of ways in Scripture. It, it speaks about from the time of the incarnation of Christ until the consummation uh, of his second coming and, and, and uh, the coming of the kingdom. But specifically here, he's talking about the church age. It's part of the end times. It marks part of the end times. And, and that's where we are at this point. And he's basically saying, live like Christ could return at any moment. That's because it's the imminent return of Christ is the focus here. And that permeates the New Testament. All through the New Testament, New Testament authors, authors speak to this event. It, Paul in Romans chapter 13, verse 11 says, Our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Well, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? I mean, the return of Christ is closer today than it was back, uh, uh, back in the... Uh, in the uh, mid '60s, when I received Christ, it's you know it's it's much closer. It's much closer today, and 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 he's saying that's the way every day is. Each day is a little bit closer. Each day that he hasn't come yet, we're a little bit closer to his coming. Uh, Hebrews, the author of Hebrews in 10:25, uh, he says this <clears throat> in the context of not forsaking the assembly. He says. All the more as we see the approaching day, or in the LSB it says drawing near. He says as we see that day drawing near, uh, he, he says know the times you live in. Understand those times. That's, that's what Peter, Peter is directing us to as we, come, as we come to the text here. James, in James 5, 8 and 9, says, he's pretty straightforward about it here. He says, you too be patient, strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And then in nine, he says, behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Uh, uh, The next click on the prophetic clock 
is the second return of Christ. Is Christ coming? Is Christ calling out His church? The unfolding of the wrath of God against sinful man, and uh, and and then His second coming and the consummation of time. Those those are the clicks on the on the on the prophetic clock. And so, for we who believe, for we who have bent our knee in this side of eternity. Um, we are to be looking for that second coming. We're to be looking for the, for the coming of Christ for His church. Uh, the imminency of that event. 1 John 2a says, This is the last hour. Uh, the, the church age concludes uh, that last hour. Uh, <clears throat> this opens... This opens uh, this 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 verse this first part of verse seven basically serves as as a bridge then from verses six going on into seven b how to live how to live our life under the under the under the uh, facing uh, facing the last days facing the fact that persecution may be coming and and as we wait for the imminent return of Jesus Christ and and he says he says the end he uses this word end which speaks to the consummation of the fulfillment it's it's a word that talks about achieving a goal or, uh, or reaching a purposed event is, is the idea that's being sent here. And the, what he's saying when he uses the word end is he's not talking about human history in the way we term it. It's not like opening a history book and studying about all the various kings and queens and, and things that went on in, in, in time as related to man and his, his time on, on earth. It's talking, about, it's talking about redemptive history. Uh, that's what he's talking about here. The end is talking about redemptive history. We are at the end of redemptive history. That's that's what he's that's what he's talking about here. We've come. There there was creation. Uh, there was the fall. Uh, there was the the time of the flood. There was the restart at, with Noah. There's the calling of Abraham. It's talking about those events as we lead up to where we are today. And the end that we're talking about today is the church age marks the end of that era of redemptive history. And 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 that's that's what he's talking about here. He he says he says the end here is of all things and this speaks of the Lord's return. That's what he that's what he's saying. He's saying here he says we have reached that time period where the end is at hand of all things. It's the close of redemptive history in a, in in a very real sense. Uh, look at Acts chapter 3 verses 18 through 21. Uh, there uh, there uh, Luke writes in, in Acts, he's quoting from Peter's sermon, he says this, but the things which God announced before, beforehand by the mouth of the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that at the times of refreshing may come from the, uh, uh, from the presence of the Lord and that, he, uh, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed to you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. There we have both comings of Christ being spoke of in Peter's sermon. He's saying Christ did can't come for salvation, but he's coming again for the restoration of all things. It's the close of redemptive history is the idea that he's talking about here. Matthew 24. Matthew 24. Oh, I didn't mark that one. 
in Matthew chapter 24, Matthew speaks of the same, the same, I, oh no, excuse me, I, I've just skipped the page. Uh, um, Hebrews chapter 9 is what I'm looking for. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. Twenty nine verse twenty eight. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. So there again he's he's talking about the two comings of Christ and, and the close of redemptive history. And then he says it's near. Uh, this is a perfect tense idea, uh, verb that says that means to uh, it's approaching. Uh, it, it points to the process of the consummation. Uh, it talks about it, it, it's near in the sense that Christ's return is in, uh, imminent, meaning at any moment. It calls us, it calls us literally to live, and I, don't, I know we all fail at this, but nevertheless, it calls us to live, and at the next second, you could be standing in the face of Jesus. That's what this calls us to. That's what, that's what Peter is talking about here. The end is near. Uh, at any moment, you could be facing Jesus. And you'll probably be like the Apostle John, on your face, on your face, the minute, you, the minute that you do. Uh, th- that's, that's the idea here. It's to live expectantly. And then, and then he says, then he says in, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. It's quiet. It's, unexpe- it's, not, it's not at a time anyone knows. It just, it's, it happens suddenly is the idea here. Uh, in, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, 13 to 18, he, he write, uh, uh, Paul writes, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. The question that had been asked by the Thessalonians is, hey, wait a minute, Christ hasn't come and some of our brethren have died. What happened to them? They, they were confused. So they, they asked that question. And, and so he's answering that. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. But this we say to you by word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen apart. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain Maine will be caught together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And it's just talking about this is, of course, the, the imminent passage on the rapture of the church. And, of course, I always have to add that the dead have to rise first because they have six feet farther to go. But that's my heresy. Don't don't go with that. Anyway, uh, he's saying here that Christ's return is near. Therefore, we are to live as if we could be in the presence at any moment. But only God knows when that moment is. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if you've studied eschatology much, if you studied prophecy that much, end time prophecy that much. Uh, but there seems to be those guys who really get caught up in it who really, really get caught up in it, somewhere along the line, they start setting dates and times. They've decided that they know more than anybody else. Somewhere they get that idea. When you get somebody that says it's going to happen on November 12th of 2023, probably won't. That's probably the wrong day. 
I don't know why I picked that, but anyway, but it came into my head. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Right, brother John said. No, no, John didn't say that. Okay, take, take that off. Take that off the tape. Uh, anyway, any, any, anyway, anyway, it's wrong. You know, it'll be wrong. That's the bottom line. It's wrong. Uh, it, it's not going to happen. Acts one seven. It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has set by His own authority. Matthew chapter twenty four thirty six in the parable of the fig tree. Jesus says, "But the day and the hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone." So don't set dates and don't listen to anybody who does. That's, that's the bottom line. Secondly, then he goes on and he talks about being undetoured in, uh, in, in our duty and our service in 7b through 11a. He says, therefore, based upon this, the fact that the end is near and Jesus could be here at any moment. Therefore, be of sound thinking, sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. We'll take that one first. That's the first Christian duty that he calls us to is prayer. Uh, it, it, is, it is eminently important in our relationship to God because it's how we talk to God. We go to him in prayer. He has made that access possible through Jesus Christ. The veil was rent that we can come into his very presence. And, and we are to use that, and we are to use that to communicate to Him. We are to come to Him in praise and in thanksgiving, and we are to come bringing our needs and our request. All of those things are to be wrapped up in that. Now that that's, that's what He wants from us, and He calls us to. And, and, and he, says, he, says here, he says here that we are to be of sound thinking and sober, uh, and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. In 3.7, he, he had told us, he had told husbands uh, that they are to, to live in an understanding way with their wives so that their prayers wouldn't be hindered. Understand that how you live has an effect on your prayer life. That's what he's saying here. So, husbands, if things are not going well in your home and you and your wife are not getting along, maybe you ought to look at that verse. Maybe you better uh, straighten up your act, is, is the idea here, because your prayers are going to be hindered. It doesn't say they won't necessarily be listened to, but they'll be hindered. They won't, they won't probably get the effect you want, is the idea here. And then he says, he says first of all, about that prayer, it's to be of sound judgment. That's the first thing he says. Sound judgment. Literally, that word means to be in your right mind. That's what it means. It means to be sane in a, in a very real sense. It, it, says, it says, I am to understand things. Incidentally, in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 15, and, especially, and in verse 15 especially, um, which is the uh, parable? Well, it's not a parable. It's the uh, 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 it is the uh, it is the events of Jesus healing the demoniac who had legions of demons in him and who did all kinds of crazy things. He was throwing himself around, scaring people, running through graveyards. The guy was the guy was the guy was nuts, literally because of the indwelling of legions of demons. And Jesus, just with a word, throws those demons out. And verse 15 says, speaking of the people around the area who were afraid to come around this guy, it says, and they 
And they came to Jesus and observed the demon-possessed man sitting down, clothed in his right mind. Same word, sober. Or a sound judgment, I mean, excuse me. It's the same word. It's the same Greek word that's used there. Uh, in his right mind, and every man who, um, and the very man who had had the legions, uh, uh, and they had, and they became frightened. They became frightened when they saw the power of Jesus overthrowing these guys out. But the point is, this man was now in his right mind. That, that's that's what that's what that's what this is saying. That's the idea here. You think about this, and you go, "Well, what does it mean to me? What does it mean to me? It means one that I have a proper view of myself." I understand who I am in relationship to the God I serve. I understand that I don't deserve to be here. He did it all by grace, uh, not on merit. Uh, There was nothing that he looked down and he looked at John and he says, there's a great guy. I need him. He didn't need me, but he did choose me. And he did choose to put his love on me. And he did choose to save me. And I'm to have that proper view. I'm to understand that. I understand that I'm in the family of God because God chose to, not because I did anything to deserve it. And anything I have done is done as a result of being saved, not to be saved. That's, that's, that's the bottom line. I'm to have a proper view of self. Not, I, uh, years ago, um, early on, in my Christian experience, I was in a church that, and I had started teaching Sunday school at that time. I hadn't gone to seminary yet. And uh, there, was a, there was a guy in our church who was, I respected a, a, a great deal, uh, but uh, he, was, uh, he was a Christian psychologist. And he brought, uh, he, he was teaching a class, and uh, he uh, brought in a guy, one of his fellow fellow uh, psychologist to to fill in for him one day when he was absent. And I didn't say anything, but I've regretted to this day I didn't challenge him. But uh, um, the guy in the class said he was talking about self-esteem. That's what he was teaching on. Self-esteem. That was a big thing then. It still is. But then that was when it was constantly heard it all the time. And he's talking about self-esteem, and he says, it's not that worm theology like amazing grace. I almost threw my Bible at him. Seriously, I almost threw my Bible at him. Do you understand amazing grace? Do you understand what that text is? Do you understand who the guy is who wrote it? He was a slaver in his former life. He was as debased and as wicked as you can get. So when he says that God saved a wretch like me, he had a proper view of who he was in the eyes of God. That, that's the point. It wasn't, oh, I'm okay, you're okay. He wasn't okay. But he is now, and he's in heaven today. But that's the idea. You need to have a proper view. It means you have to have, it means that your, your emotions and your passions are controlled by the Holy Spirit. That's part of it. Having a sound mind. You don't run with every emotion. You know, your first response to things sometimes is not the best one. Uh, you don't run with those kinds of things. You don't let those control you. There are many people today who control you. I think that's probably what was controlling the guy who wound up in my front yard this morning. But, but at any rate, at any rate, uh, that's, that's, that's the idea here. He says that it's all to be subject to Christ and to his word. Second uh, Timothy. Uh, excuse me. Second Timothy, chapter three. 
Yep, that's first. Second uh, Timothy chapter three. And probably most of you are very familiar with this particular verse. Uh, but the three verse at verse sixteen. All Scripture is God breathed and profitable, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's that's the idea here. Being sound minded, biblically grounded. God breathe. I, I, I love that term. It's one of the words Paul made up, you know. It, it's not found anywhere else. Theonumatos. He made that word and put it in Scripture. It literally means God breathed out. Uh, one, one guy said God expirated the words of Scripture. That's, that's the idea here. Uh, and, and that's where we are to tie ourselves. Secondly, he says, not only do we be in our right mind with a proper view of things under control, but we're to be sober. My, uh, we're to be sober. Uh, the text usually adds sober in spirit. Uh, that's in parenthesis. It's in italic, so it's it's added to help understand. Uh, that's the idea, though. It's to have spiritual awareness, uh, to be observant, to see clearly, uh, to view that sound judgment in a clear view of Scripture. Is the idea here? Uh, <clears throat> And it, uh, uh, it, it has the, the concept of being spiritually alert, uh, is, is the idea here. Uh, that's, uh, Jesus called us to that in Matthew 24, verse 42. He says, be alert, therefore be alert. He tells us uh, to be on the alert, literally, is what he says. Uh, we're to have a spiritual alertness. Peter, in 5, is going, to, is going to bring this idea up again in verse 8, where he says, Be of sober spirit, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. It's alertness. It's spiritual alertness. That's the idea. And when we come to prayer, we're to have, be in our right mind, and to be alert to what is going on around us. In other words, we're to know what the times are. That's, that's what he's saying here. And then he says this is all for the purpose of prayer. We need to be in our right mind and spiritually aware. It requires effort. It's coming to the throne of God. Hebrews 4.16 where he tells us we can enter the very throne room of God. We come into his very presence. Uh, and incidentally, First uh, Samuel 12.23 tells us to fail to pray is a sin. Ultimately, uh, to to put prayer off is a sin. Prayer is that thing which connects us vertically with God, which then enables us to be rightly collect, connected horizontally with man. And and it's 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 of utmost importance. And then he moves on from that vertical connection to the horizontal connection because he says in verse eight. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. This is the next Christian duty, to love one another. Uh, it's run, this runs throughout creation. Um, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse, verse, uh, verse 13 says, But now abides faith, hope, and love, but of these three the greatest is love. Uh, so that's why he's saying here, it's of utmost importance. This is of special importance. Keep your relationship with God correct in prayer. Keep your relationship with your fellow believers in prayer by loving one another. That's, that's the idea here. He says, keep connects it together. Uh, we, we are to have sober minds, or sober, 
sound judgment and sober minds uh, that we might have for the purpose of prayer so that we can remain fervent in our love. The word fervent is a is a is a is a term uh, related to muscles. It, it means to stretch a muscle to its limit, uh, to 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 use all the muscle can do. Literally, is is the idea here. It's it's it pictures in in Greek literature. It pictures a horse straining to run at full gallop. That that's the picture that it is in in, in classical Greek. Uh, it 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 has the idea of giving maximum effort. That's 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 the picture that he's painting here. Now, we're to give maximum effort to one to loving one another. That's that's what he's saying here. Uh, it's it's in he, he uses uh, a. This same idea in chapter one, verse twenty-two, where he tells us, where he tells us, since you have been obedient to the truth, purify your souls for a love of the brethren without hypocrisy, fervently loving one another from the heart. That's that's the idea here. It's to be stretched to the limits. We're to strain ourselves all the way. The word love is agape. It's not sentimental love. It's not romantic love. It's not even parent to child love. It is the love of the will. It is, I will to love you. It's not an emotion. It's an action. It's an action word. It means, it, it means I'm willing to sacrifice on your behalf. It's the John 3.16 word. That God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. That's, that's the issue here. That's what, it's, that's what he's telling us in these verses. He uses the same word in chapter, chapter 1, verses 8 and verse 22 that we just looked at. Uh, he uses it in 2.17 and here in 3.10. It's that sacrificial love is the idea here. Our love for one another means we give on behalf of one another. I will to love you. I will love you because I will love you. That's the idea here. In the same way, uh, in the same way God loved me. Ephesians 5, verse 2. And walk in love, just as Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. That's the idea here. Uh, it's, it's, to, it's to mimic the love Christ has for us. That's, that's what we're to do. And then he goes on, and, he's, and he makes this interesting statement. He says, love covers a multitude of sins. Uh, it doesn't mean that it forgives sins, necessarily. It doesn't mean that it eradicates sins, or it, it makes sins unimportant. It simply means that we don't, we, as an act of our will, in the, in the agape love mentality, don't count the sins. Uh, we don't take them. Uh, we don't retaliate. Uh, we love anyway. Uh, we're about restoration fellowship is the idea here that is, that is being, being expressed here. It's the idea that God's love that we experience in salvation which forgave our sin, John 3.16, a Christian is to extend that kind of love to his fellow believer. In other words, I'm not supposed to get all up mad and kick you in the shins if you step on my toe. That's the idea here. I'm not to 
hold that against you. I'm not to be running around bad-mouthing you because of it. I mean, this runs throughout Scripture. The idea here is we don't hold grudges. Uh, we, don't, we don't let those things eat away at us. It's, it's that kind of idea. In my Bible, the verse that says love covers multiple sins, all we have, is there a reason for that? Because it's a quote from the Old Testament, which I'm about to get to. <laughs> Proverbs 10, 12 <laughs> is where it came from. <laughs> it comes from Proverbs 12, 10, and it's repeated again by James in 5, 20. That's why. When you see that all caps, you see that all caps, it means it's a quote from the Old Testament. Good question, though. That, that, sometimes, you know, you, you ask about that. When you see it, you see it in when it's italicized. That means they added a word for understanding. The translators added that word to help understand it, because in the Greek, that word is not there. But if you, were a, if you read Greek, you would understand that's what it meant. But as an English reader, you know, you, you, you go, huh? So, actually, if you if you read it in English the way it's actually written in Greek, you you would go you would be scratching your head. So the translators have to fix that so that it translates correctly into English. But it's still the meaning. It's still the same the same the same context is the idea here. So that's that's what they're saying. Uh, but we're 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 our love is to cover the wrongs suffered. Is the idea here? Our love for one another is to cover the wrongs suffered. Sometimes that is hard. That's very hard. I've been around in church. I was in been in in leadership in two former churches for probably a total of thirty years. And you know, there's a lot of things that happen, and you see a lot of things, and you have a lot of th- you have a lot of things directed at you. I, I believe me, pray for our elders and pastors every day because they have a target on their back. Actually, they have a target on their front and their back and their top and their bottom. I mean, they're, it's everywhere. They're, they're a target. And, and you need to understand that. And, and they get shot at. I mean, I've, when my kids were little, they were criticized because they wiggled too much in church. You know, oh, you're an elder. They're not supposed to wiggle. Really? You know a five-year-old that don't wiggle? Yeah. You know, anyway, you know, am I right? <laughs> you know, uh, but uh, uh, you know, uh, it's just it's just crazy the things that happen. You know, and if and you can become bitter and embittered and and angry and upset, but this says no. You you let you love them enough to let it go. You know, you just let it go. You don't hold on to it. You hold on to it, it just eats up your bones. Read the Psalms. That's what David says. It just eats up your bones. At any rate, he says, uh, he, he says, he says, uh, he, he says, we're to forgive as Christ forgave. That's, that's the point. Colossians chapter 3. Well, let's go to Ephesians first. Ephesians uh, chapter 5, verse 2. He said, Paul wrote this, Walk in love just as Christ also loved us and gave himself as an example. I think I just read that. Offering a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. And then in Colossians, in Colossians uh, chapter 3, verse 13. 
bearing with one another and graciously forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord graciously forgave you, you should do also. That's that's the idea. We're to forgive. We're to love as God did. That's that's what He's saying to us in these in these uh, in these texts. You know how to remember these middle epistles of Paul? Yeah. yeah you know, go eat popcorn. <laughs> Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Go eat popcorn. There you go. I, I Seriously, I do that. It runs in my head. Somebody told me that a long time ago. Anyway, there, there's a great piece of theological knowledge. I spent six years in seminary to learn that. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, next he goes. He goes on from there. Uh, not only are we to, not only are we to be fervent in prayer. Not only are we to love, but we are to be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Now, in the days this was written, uh, this had a very specific idea to it. Travel in those days was very difficult. Most people walked. You might have a donkey to ride on, or maybe a camel. Uh, but, but for the most part, travel was difficult. It was dangerous. There were thieves along the road. Camping out was not always a very good idea, especially if you had a family with you. Inns were not the best place in the world. Uh, they were usually filled with drunkards and other things that are not good. <laughs> Let's put it that way. We won't go into the details. Uh, but uh, inns were not a nice place to stay. You know, you, there wasn't a Sheridan to stop at, you know, or a Four Seasons or something like that. Those places didn't exist in that day. So hospitality was very important. You you took in to your home strangers. You fed them. You gave them a place to sleep. You know, that's that's the idea uh, that was being spoken of here. Uh, But it's still a requirement. It's still it's still uh, it still should be practiced. Peter uh, Paul tells us in Romans 12, 12, 13 to pursue hospitality. In other words, it's not just that. Well, you should be hospitable to somebody, but you should actually be looking to be able to do it is is the idea here. It's a requirement of elders in first uh, first Timothy chapter three verse two and Titus one eight. It's also widows are called upon to do the same thing in first Timothy five ten. I, I think Pastor Steve just mentioned that in his his uh, address on widows. But it's 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 it was it's an important feature of the Christian life. Now how that's practiced today, how we work that out today, it has various ways. You may uh, you may have in the past, if you've been around for a while and been in church for a while, you may have housed a missionary as they travel through, or, or uh, if your church has a special speaker, hosted a dinner, or on and on and on. But the idea is, is, is that you love strangers. That's literally what hospitality means. That the love of strangers. That's what it means. Uh, so there's there's a number of practical ways in which it can be it can be uh, it can be expressed today. It may be just taking care of somebody. It may be renting a motel room for somebody who is stuck or broken down or needs help. It, it's those kinds of things. It's it's those kinds of things that that you offer to people. You try to do something, whatever it is you can to help them along their way. Is, is really, really the idea here. And then he says you're to have a specific attitude about it, too. 
without grumbling. And this word actually has, actually means repeated words of complaint. In other words, you're not to be going, you know, the whole time. That's not what, that's not the way it's to be expressed. It's not to be, well, I guess I got to take care of this guy. It's not that. It's, it's not that kind of an attitude. The attitude is, is, is that I am glad to do it. It's an it's a it's a, it's a attitude of unselfishness. And it's also a, uh, an attitude in which, when necessary, you bear the cost. Sometimes you just bear the cost uh, as, as well. And you don't grumble about it. Uh, one commentator mentioned that the idea here of these continual complaining words is basically you're creating you're you're complaining about God's operation in the circumstance of your life you're you're complaining about God ultimately is what what he pointed out Galatians 6:10 says though then while we have opportunity let us do good to all people and especially to those of the household of faith that's how this is to be applied. Where you can do good, you should do good. That's, that's the idea here of hospitality. To love strangers and to, and, to, and to provide for their needs when you can and as you can. And then he moves on from, from duty to service. And he goes in, and, and in 10, uh, verses 10 through the first part of, of 11, he's going to talk about uh, gifts, ultimately. He says, For each one has received a gift. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is one speaking the oracles of God, and whoever serves is one serving uh, by the strength which God supplies. So we're going to look at those verses for just a minute here. The first thing he talks about here is he moves into the area of gifts. And he says about gifts, he says, to each one has received a gift. That's what he says. That's the first thing. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have been, if the Holy Spirit has baptized you into the body of Jesus Christ, at the same time, he also blessed you with some spiritual ability that you didn't have prior to this, uh, to, to serve the body of Christ. That, that's, that's the doctrine. That's, that's what this is about. That's what spiritual gifts are. Some people have a combination of gifts. Uh, some have more than one gift, but everybody has at least one. Uh, everybody has an ability to do something in the service of the Lord that has been empowered by the Holy Spirit. They're all equal. None is superior. None is lesser. Uh, they're all important. And we're, we're going to talk about that here in just a minute. Uh, they're all important. And if you fail to exercise your gift, you're robbing the body of Christ of a needed element. That, ultimately, that's what that means. That, that's, that's what we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which is the primary chapter on gifts. I'm not so much interested in going through lists of gifts, because if you look at what it actually says about gifts, sometimes it's kind of hard to pinpoint exactly what the, the complexion of gifts in your life are and how they function with natural abilities and and the gifts given by the Spirit uh, to to enable you to serve God fully in His body and to to uh, to the benefit of each of us. Incidentally, 
Gifts are not something you get to pick out. Just, just want to point that out to you. You can't really pray and get one of them. The Holy Spirit did it when you were saved. Okay? It's his job, not yours. I had a guy one time say to me, I want the gift of giving. <laughs> and then he said, why? Because that means I have to have the gift of receiving. He never got that gift, I guarantee it. But nevertheless, nevertheless, you can't do that kind of thing. He says, to each one has received a gift. Each one, every believer. As is a word that means to the extent or in the same way. In other words, you receive your gift the same way I received mine, the same way she received hers, and on and on and on. The Holy Spirit gave it to you. And you didn't pick it. He did. That's, that's the idea here. Because he goes on to say, it is a gift. It's a charisma. It's a free act of grace. And there was no merit involved in it. He didn't say, you know, I'm giving you a better gift because you're such a great guy. He gave them all on an equal basis. None of it was by merit. It was by the choice, by the sovereign choice of the Spirit of God. That's, that's, how, that's how they receive. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we probably need to, we'll, we'll be there for a little bit. Notice in, ver, in chapter 12, in verse 7, he says this, But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit, or the charisma of the Spirit, this gift of the Spirit, for, uh, for what is profitable. And then in verse 11, he says, But the one and same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. Understand whose will is involved here, not yours. And then he, go, he goes on, and the, and the primary text on, spirit, uh, on spiritual gifts are, are 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 11, and Romans 12, 3 through 8, although they're sporadic through other parts of Scripture, but we're not going to go to all of that. Uh, but verse 7 says, he says, to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit that is profitable. That's, that's, that's verse 7. Verse 11 tells us that it's according to his will. This eliminates any pride. You can't take pride in that. How can I take pride in saying, oh, I have this great gift because I'm wonderful. No, I have whatever gift I have because the Spirit of God and His sovereign will chose to do so. And He did the same thing with you. It's all equal. It's all equal. There's no better or lesser is is the idea here. It's it's all one. And 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 he goes on to he says that the none are none are none are superior is the idea here. And then he 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 gives this illustration of how they function in verses fourteen through twenty-six where he equates it to the body. He basically says, you know, the eye can't say this to the ear, and the ear can't say this to the mouth, and you can't decide you, that a foot is less than a hand, or that a mouth is greater than, than your intestines, you know? The fact of the matter is, if you lose any of those parts, the body doesn't function as well. That's the point. And, and that's what he's saying here. If, if there's a gift not being exercised, then the body is ill. It's Infirmed because of it. That's 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 the that's the picture uh, that is painted in in First Corinthians uh, first uh, fourteen through twenty six. It needs them all functioning together for the body to operate properly. And then you don't have to take a bunch of pills. I've reached that age where I take a bunch of pills. So anyway, you know. 
blood pressure, cholesterol, all that kind of stuff. Because they don't eat right. Anyway, each believer's gift gift is unique. Four through six tells us that. He tells it. He tells us. There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. There are varieties of working, but the same God who works all in all. And notice the triune God is involved in the gifts. He says, but to each one is given the manifestation. The Spirit is profitable. And and the idea here is that that giftedness is unique, and and, and while we might have the same gift, it may be used in a totally different way in each one of us. So there's a multiplication then of how the gifts function, how, how they're administered, how they're operated, and the, and the variety that are involved in them. In other words, there's all different kinds of ways that, that it can be expressed. Uh, so don't take a test on to find out what your spiritual gift is. Those are a waste of your time. They're just a waste of time. That was a big popular thing back a number of years ago. Everybody was taking tests. Well, I have the gift of this, therefore I don't do anything else. That's what it led to. That's what it ultimately led to. So, Brother John, then how are we supposed to figure out our gift then if it's not a test? Or I will tell you. Oh. I will t- I, here, let, me t- let, me tell you, let me tell you how it worked. Let me tell you how it worked for me. Okay. When I was saved as a teenager. But I was a member of a Methodist church, and we finally quit going to church because when the sermons were on why you don't have Sunday harness racing at Hollywood Park because people wouldn't go to church, my parents said, enough, and we quit going. And we quit going to church after that. Later on, down the road, uh, I went to work for a guy after I came back from the military. I went to work for a guy who was a very devout Christian, and I, 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 I worked for him part-time. I mean, I, I worked for the telephone company, and this was a part-time job to help because we had little kids, and Kathy was at home taking care of them, and we needed extra income. So I took this job. And, and ultimately, I read uh, the book one night. It rained all night, and I had no customers. So I read his book that he had in the, in the office called The Late Great Planet Earth. It scared the bejeebers out of me, and I decided it was time to get right with God. And so Kathy and I decided that's what we would do. We, we moved here to Bakersfield, and uh, we started attending West Park Baptist Church, which is now a all-you-can-eat restaurant. But anyway, uh, we, we were attending that church, and when we started attending there, I, there was this, this powerful desire to be able to serve. I mean, that's what it was. I, I knew instinctively that I needed to find a place I could serve. And uh, so they, I, but I didn't think I could do anything. My experience in the Methodist church was the pastor did everything and nobody else did anything. But uh, uh, um, um, I, um, they, they needed people to mow the lawn. You don't want to mow the lawn like in Bakersfield with a walk-behind mower as on a six-acre lot. But anyway, we didn't have it all in grass. But anyway, I volunteered to mow the lawn. So once a month, I mowed the lawn. You know, we had a rotating schedule. And that's how I started. I just found something I could do, and I did it. And from that, from that, uh, one day I stopped in and 
said hi to the pastor, and, and he was a very gracious guy, you know, and he invited me in to sit down and take a break. And he had this plaque on his wall, and it had these crazy-looking letters on it. They were Hebrew. And I said, what does that say? And he pulled out his Hebrew Bible and gave me a half-hour Hebrew lesson. I was fascinated. A few months later, they had a day that they called Layman Sunday, which he took three guys from the congregation and he said, he said to those, he had those three guys preach a sermon. Each one, he kind of outlined it, and they got a point, and they taught the, they taught the point through the sermon. And I told Kathy that day, something told me, next year you're going to be doing that. And told me, teaching is where you need to be. How did I get there? I just found a place to start serving, and from that, God took me where he wanted me to be. I think that's how it happens. I think that's how it happens for most people. Is you just you start serving and you find out, you know, this really isn't. I mean, I found out real quick teaching junior high Sunday school was not for me. It was adults. You know, that's where God wanted me. And and then what did he do? He opened the door to go to seminary. I'm probably the only guy that ever went to master seminary who was not there looking for a job. I had a career. I was there looking to be the best teacher I could be. Now, that doesn't mean I'm the best teacher, it, it, which is probably evident to all of you, but, but, but I'm probably the best teacher I can be, you know, and that's what I wanted to be. I told one of the professors that one day, and he kind of looked at me like, really? <laughs> you know, you spent all this money and got tortured for six years for that, <laughs> you know, but yeah, exactly, you know, but, but that's how it happened for me. Uh, so, yeah, I believe firmly that God gave me the gift of teaching and that's where he wanted me to be that doesn't mean I don't do other things and I don't serve in other areas and I have through the years but primarily I'm a teacher and I approach things from that from that standpoint as I teach Bible you know and I've done it for 40 years now so that's pretty much how I think it unfolds but don't take those tests because tests will just mess you up is that any way helpful to you? Yeah. Maybe, yeah. But anyway, he says he talks about the, the the purpose of the gifts are for serving one another. Verse seven told us that, and he go, he goes on and he tells us, and then he tells us he tells us about that that we are to. Oh man, we're out of time. Uh, uh, that we're to. Uh, we're to use those as the manifold grace of God as a good steward. A steward, of course, is, is a servant who handles the master's goods, his property. So in other words, whatever your giftedness is, is a stewardship that you're to handle for God. You're operating that in his for his purpose that's the idea and for his glory ultimately which is what verse which is what verse um, verse verse 11 is going to tell us that everything is to be done for his glory it's a, basically a benediction but he goes on from there and he and he says manifold means many colored many faceted meaning the gifts represent a diversity in their administration they're diverse uh, and they they uh, they carry a, a great deal of value. And then he goes on and he, 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 he speaks of two broad categories. One is speaking, uh, and that can involve anything, anything along from teaching, preaching, uh, evangelistic work. It, can, it even includes singing. Uh, I mean, the original way they taught doctrine in the church was singing because people couldn't read. 
And they, they, they taught him through songs. It includes singing. And he says, if you're speaking, you're speaking the oracles of God. That means when I, that's why I always preface when it's my heresy, you know, <laughs> because I don't want you to take it as what the Bible teaches. But this means, this means that you, you are to have a, uh, uh, you're, it doesn't mean that you, you literally speak in fallible words. That doesn't happen. It has the idea here that with the ser- seriousness and purposeness uh, in speaking God's word. In other words, you, you, you stay to the text, you stay to the truth of what the word says. You don't try to make it into some pet hobby horse or something that you're going to ride. Uh, you don't include human opinion uh, because all scripture is God-breathed. And it's good for correction. It does. It grows. The body is the idea. First, uh, First Corinthians, uh, or excuse me, First Timothy, one eleven says this. He says, according to the gospel of glory of the bless of of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. In other words, we've been entrusted with the word of God, and we are to handle it as such with all seriousness. And then he, then he talks about service, which covers a wide scope of giftedness. It covers all kinds of things, and it basically it basically says. Um, this is something that isn't done uh, with human effort. It's done with, by divine effort. It's on dependence of the Holy Spirit. Spirit, Philippians four thirteen. I can do all things through Him who who uh, has strengthened me. I'm sorry to kind of cut this one short, but but service is is the, the people that, that serve the church that serve all that goes on. I mean. Where would teachers be if somebody didn't turn on the lights and put the podium out here? You know, we'd be, or, and if Michael didn't tell me to turn on this microphone, you know, it's those kind of things. It, it, all of that stuff is invaluable. Uh, speaking is out front and people see you, but it's not more important than anything else. It's important, but it's not more important. Uh, the guys, the guys up there running that sound box are vitally important. All those musicians and singers, and and all that they do, they're vitally important. I, 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 kind of in a sense, I don't mean this in a sinful way, but I kind of envy the fact that they can do that because I can't carry a tune in a bucket, you know. And but I love it, you know, and and I love the orchestra and all this music and 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 it it makes me realize how wonderful our God is and I, I look forward to the day in heaven when I can sing <laughs> and people won't go <laughs> yeah. uh, but but that that's the reality here that's the reality here and then on, and then in verse 11b simply what he is saying here is he says that even in the midst of suffering even no matter what is going on glory to God is what we're about that's what we're to be about, is that we are to glorify God. Romans 11.36, for him, for him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And, and that's the idea here. You look at Revelation chapter uh, chapters 4, uh, verse 12, and 5, verse 12, and 7, verse 12. I don't know why they're all verse 12, but they're all verse 12. They all talk about, they all talk about giving glory to God. That ultimately, it's talking about the glory that's being given to God. Uh, 
Paul calls us to do all things to the glory of God in 1 Corinthians 10.13. So what he is is telling us through this text is even though we may face suffering, no matter what our circumstance, where we are, uh, we are to know the times, to be steadfast in our duty and service, and in all of this, we're to give glory to our God. Ultimately, is what he says. We are to glorify the God who saved us. And then he he concludes with amen, which basically is the Hebrew word that means, it doesn't mean, it it means, so let it be. May this be so. I'm sorry I went way over this morning. I got carried away. I didn't think I had it. I I didn't think I had enough for this morning. Anyway, but thank you for the time. Let's pray. Father God, we, uh, we give you thanks this morning. We give you thanks for this text. And we, we ask, Father, that we would, we would be a people who comes before you fervent in our prayer, uh, fervently praying, holding fast to loving one another, being hospitable toward one another. That we would use our gifts to your ultimate glory, that we would we would look for opportunities to serve and that we would move into those areas and that we would do all that we can uh, to serve you and recognizing that it is it is for the benefit of others and to glorify your name. And then in all things, we would indeed glorify you for we ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus and we ask you to so let it be. Amen.